I would invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word in Mark's Gospel again, chapter 10. We'll be in verses 32 through 45. Mark 10, 32 through 45. If you're using one of the uh, black hardback Bibles uh, from a chair uh, underneath, uh, underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find Mark 10, uh, verse 32, starting on page 795. Uh, before uh, we turn to God's Word, I want to remind you of one more thing that I forgot in our earlier announcements, because that's what I do, I forget things. And, uh, but that is that the Baptist Convention of New Mexico State Eva- or Evangelism Conference is happening tomorrow and Tuesday. Uh, it's free to attend. It's happening at Hoffmantown Church this year. Um, you can register for it uh, online if you go to bcnm.com. You can find uh, links to register for the Evangelism Conference. It's free. Uh, it happens tomorrow night. It starts around 4.30. It's like registration and and uh, kind of opening stuff, and then I think the program starts about 5.30, 5.45. Uh, a couple of speakers are going to be here throughout the week. One is uh, an evangelist and um, a professor from Southwestern Baptist Seminary, Matt Queen. Uh, the other is um, a staff evangelist uh, with the North American Mission Board by the name of Shane Pruitt, who works with mostly young people, youth and college students and that sort of thing. So uh, if, you're, if you're looking for, uh, if, you, if you'd like to receive a little bit of a shot in the arm, encouragement, some equipping for evangelism, I would encourage you, uh, come to the evangelism conference tomorrow night. It's all day Tuesday. Um, I know many of you work during the day on Tuesday, so if you can't make it during the Tuesday morning or afternoon sessions, come in the evening again for a time of worship uh, and equipping there. Uh, Again, it's free. All it costs you is a drive to Hoffmantown Church, so I encourage you to go. You'll see me there, and uh, we can sit together, sing together, and uh, grow as evangelists and disciple makers together. Mark 10, 32 through 45 is our text today, a sermon I've titled, A Ransom for Many. I just like to steal titles from the text because it just makes sense sometimes. Nearly every comic book villain, and I love comic books and I love some villains, nearly every comic book villain or James Bond villain usually starts out on on a quest for power to do something good. Most comic book villains and, and, and James Bond villains don't always start with only evil intentions. Usually, though, somewhere along that path, they either get jaded or some terrible tragedy happens to them, like, or they fall in a vat of acid and their face is horribly disfigured forever. <laughs> something happens along the way that, that changes something in the mind of that individual who started out on a quest to attain power to do something good, and now something changes, and they still want that power, but that power turns to doing something more personally profitable, doing something to gain more influence or power for themselves, and that's how villains are born. The old adage goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This adage, illustrated in our favorite comic book and James Bond villains, leaves us usually longing for a hero with power to do what is good and right and just, and with all of the character not to be corrupted by that power. When we come to the Gospel of Mark, we find that the disciples of Jesus have recognized that He has power. There's a recognition that He's not a man like every other man. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ, as Peter confessed back in Mark chapter 8. But we've seen over and again that the disciples, for all that they think they know about Jesus, still have an unclear perception about His power and what sort of Messiah they think that He's going to be. 
And their unclear perception of who Jesus is and what he does with his power has corrupted their own assumptions about what they think that they will get out of being his buddies. This Jesus has power, power to do great things. We are close to him. Perhaps that power will end up for our benefit. In Mark chapter 10, we have the third in a series of three predictions by Jesus of his own death and resurrection. And the third, and with it, the third misunderstanding by the disciples that follows. Jesus teaches that he will be a serving, suffering, delivering Messiah, and that his followers must be those who are likewise ready to suffer and serve as they take on the character of their deliverer, that his power is not for their prosperity. Which leads us to the main idea of our time in God's word today. It's this. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. That service and sacrifice are the call of the Savior. And service and sacrifice are also the call of those who follow Him. People follow Jesus and take on the name of Christian for lots of different and sometimes self-serving reasons. The passage that we'll be spending time in this morning reveals to us our need to understand Christ's purpose and identity clearly so that we can make an informed and intentional decision about following Him. We do not give Jesus his purpose or identity. That's not something we assign to him. He reveals that to us. And because he is king, because he's Messiah, because he's all the things that the disciples knew that he was, but misunderstood what that was all about, because he is the Messiah, he's the one who defines what discipleship after him, what those who follow him will do and what it must look like. What we must each grapple with today is that the call to follow Jesus does not give us power and position. It's not a call to prosperity and influence. Rather, it's a call to sacrifice and to service for the name of Jesus. As you're comfortably able, would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. I encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, or you can read along on the screens. This is what we read there. And they, Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is prepared for those for whom it has been prepared. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's good word for us. You may be seated. The call of the Savior and the call of his disciples is to serve and to sacrifice. Our text this morning gives us really the mission statement of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark describes him uh, for us, beginning in the first verse of his gospel. The mission statement of Jesus comes to us in the last verse of this statement uh, of our passage today that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But before we get to that, we see a couple of other things here in the text before us. The first, in verses 32 and 33, is a startling prediction. Jesus gives a startling prediction. Now, this, the prediction that he gives, specifically of his death and resurrection, is in one sense not startling. It's not surprising as we read Mark's gospel, because this is the third time that we've seen, that we've heard Jesus do this. And his prediction is consistent every single time. Listen, in Mark 8.31, this is the first time Jesus predicted his death and suffering. Listen to what he said. Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. One chapter later, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, we read this. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now here in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus is saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. In every one of his predictions, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer... He's going to be killed, and after three days, he'll rise again. So this prediction isn't necessarily startling because of what Jesus is saying, at least to us who are reading Mark's gospel. We've heard him do this twice already. But it is a startling prediction because of where the disciples are now headed. Looking at your Bibles, where are the disciples on their way to? Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. This is where the chief priests and the scribes are headquartered. The crowd and the disciples understand that Jesus is headed steadfastly. He's leading them now. That Jesus is headed to the place where he has said he will be delivered over and killed. It's one thing to say these things are going to happen. It's another thing to say these things are going to happen while you're on the road to the place where the people who are going to condemn you are. This is all getting very real very quickly for the disciples and for those who are also following Jesus. And things are going to speed up in just the next chapter, in Mark chapter 11, where we see Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, the city of Jerusalem, people welcoming him as a king, even with all their misunderstanding about what sort of king he will be. Mark chapter 11, in the last five, six chapters of Mark, is is going to detail the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to spend a full third of Mark's gospel in just the last seven days, six days of Jesus' life. Things are speeding to the cross very quickly at this point. So the reaction of the disciples and of the crowd who are following him is understandable. On one hand, on the one hand, Mark says they were amazed, amazed that he would go willingly to the place that he had said he would be condemned to die. Jesus, you do understand the direction we're walking here, and you're saying these things are going to happen? We see that they're not just amazed, but the crowd uh, and the disciples are also afraid. 
probably afraid of what will happen there. This is the third time Jesus has talked about dying and being raised again. And now we're going to the place where the people who he said is going to kill him actually are. This is scary. What's going to happen to him? Is all of this really going to happen to him? And if that happens to him, what's going to happen to us? As Jesus makes this third startling prediction of his death and resurrection in Mark, it's important for us to understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, is himself divine. He's, he's God in human flesh. His consistent and detailed three times and, and, and with absolute consistency, his prediction of his death and resurrection speaks to the knowledge that he has as God in human flesh of what his life will come to. But it also reveals to us again that Jesus has a purpose and that he knows his purpose. He's not been wandering around uh, trying to figure out this whole Messiah thing on his own. Like just start teaching one day and we'll see where it goes. After a while, figure out this may not go well. Now, sometimes we'll see comical depictions of Jesus or of other Messiah-like figures in movies or, or in books or TV shows. And it's not uncommon to see these so-called messiahs as unintentional messiahs. Like, they didn't mean to become influential figures. It all started out maybe as a joke, and then things got really serious really quickly, and then the hijinks ensue, and it's a funny, sad story to watch. But that is far from the portrait that we have of Jesus in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are easily the most reliable and consistent accounts that we have of Jesus's life. And in the Gospels, Jesus knows his identity as the divine Son of God. He knows his role as God's Messiah, as God's Christ. He sees the purpose of his life in crystal clear detail, and his purpose is to die and to rise again. He's under no misconception about what it means to be the Messiah. Amen. It's important to note, even with this third startling prediction of his dead, death and resurrection, that Jesus is not some accidental victim of history. Not at all. His three startling predictions of his death and resurrection with prophetic precision show us that he understands full well that this is his identity and this is his purpose. This is what he has come to do. Jesus' startling prediction is followed in verses 35 through 40 with a stunning presumption. A stunning presumption. Now we've seen the pattern twice already. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus gives a prediction of his death and resurrection. In Mark 8, 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, mind you, in Mark 8, 29, Jesus has just confessed, or Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. This has been revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. And now that you know that, let me tell you something about what the Son of Man must do. He's going to die and be raised again. And right after that, Peter says, no way, Lord, not going to happen. And in Mark 8, 34, Jesus rebukes Peter calls him Satan, says, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, adversary. You're not setting your mind on God's will, but on man's will. And in Mark 8, 34, Jesus calls a crowd to him with his disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So instance number one, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Peter misunderstands what in the world it means to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, this is what it means. It means taking up your cross, denying yourself and following me. Then the next chapter, Mark 9, 31, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection again. And in chapter 9, verse 34, we see the disciples beginning to argue about who among them is the greatest. And in Mark 9, 35, Jesus sat down and 
called the twelve, Mark says, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So if anyone's going to follow Jesus, he has to take up his cross, deny himself and follow him. If anyone is going to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to be first, wants to be great, he needs to be last and servant of all, not, not trying to, to fight for positions of greatness. Following Jesus is about going down, not going up. So now we have the third prediction of his death and resurrection. And the third time's a charm, right? By now, the disciples will get it. They'll have figured out that following the Messiah, that following the Christ means self-sacrifice and service and being a slave to all. Surely, after Jesus just said to the rich young man, in the passage we looked at last week, Mark 10, verse 31, that the many who are first will be last and the last will be first, surely, surely, the disciples will understand what it means to follow Jesus now, right? Wrong! No sooner does Jesus finish this prediction of his death, the third one, than do James and John come to Jesus asking him for a favor. Teacher, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, what is it that you're asking? Reminds me of like when a friend might come to you and Maybe you've done this to a friend. If you're that kind of friend, stop it. But when a friend comes to you and says, hey, pal, you know we're friends, like good friends, like besties for the resties friends, right? And you know, you know that because we're friends that we would do anything for each other. You know that if you asked me to do anything for you, friend, I would do it for you without a question. So I have a favor I need you to do for me. You would be right to respond to a friend like that with immediate suspicion and say, well, friend, what is it? It, it all depends on the favor. Right? Uh, I might do a lot of things for you, but there's a lot of things I won't do for you. I'm not going to help you hide a body. <laughs> the request of the disciples to Jesus is to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in his glory. Jesus says, what do you want? What is it you're asking? Well, here's what we want. We want to be your right and left-hand men when you come into your kingdom. We want to be next to you in, in places of great prominence. Now, there is in their question uh, an assumption, and it's not unique to James and John. This is an assumption that has spread at least among the 12. The assumption that since Jesus is the Messiah, since he is God's Christ, that he will soon sit as king over God's kingdom. In their minds, it was king over a restored Israel. Not bearing in mind that Jesus says himself in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. They think he's coming to restore a worldly and earthly kingdom. And the assumption by the disciples leads to the presumption of James and John here that they deserve to have the places of highest and second highest prominence in Jesus' kingdom. When you're on David's throne, in Israel restored, Jesus, we want to be your closest advisors. We want to be the, the next guys in charge. We want to be right next to you and wielding power over your kingdom. In Matthew chapter 20, we have this uh, same scenario depicted from Matthew's point of view. And there, Matthew notes that it was the mother of James and John that asked Jesus to do this for her sons. But in both cases, Jesus, whether it's in Matthew or here in Mark, Jesus addresses James and John. So as to say, even if their mom asked, it was, it was their initiative, right? Like maybe they pulled her aside, hey, listen, mom, I don't, we know Jesus likes us, but... 
I think he might like you a little bit more. And if you could ask him to do this thing for us, he, he might listen to you and do it. But in both cases, Jesus turns to James and John to tell them essentially what he tells them next, to ask them what he asks them next. And by the question, and well, and he tells them, first of all, how presumptuous they have been. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You guys are crazy. And they ask two questions. Can you drink the cup I drink? When said like this, we, we see a phrase like this, uh, drinking the cup or a cup being poured out, phrase, phrases like that in the Old Testament. Where it occurs in the Old Testament, the cup is often a picture of the cup of God's wrath that's poured out in judgment. Here, in the case of Jesus, it does mean that Jesus is going to have the cup of God's wrath and judgment poured out on him in the place of sinners at the cross, but it also is a cup of pain and suffering that will be poured out on him as he goes to the cross. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you, he asks a second question, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, we know that Jesus is not talking about water baptism as a, as a new believer, as a profession of faith in Him. He's not talking about water baptism, but about immersion in suffering and in death. Can, can you go under that, James and John? Even their initial response and the speed with which they give it seems kind of presumptuous. Oh, yes, Lord, of course we can. No problem. Not an issue. And Jesus turns and if I were going to read a tone into Jesus' voice, I would read, I think, a solemn tone here. Jesus affirms that they will suffer the way that he will. They will drink that cup. They will be baptized like he does. Disciples of Jesus in the church in the first century who are reading Mark's gospel for the first time, they would have known that James was the first of the apostles to be martyred by beheading. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. And even later readers would have known that this John is the same John who wrote a gospel, who wrote three letters to the church, and who received the revelation as it was written to seven churches while he was exiled on an island by the emperor Domitian, exiled to die in solitude for his witness to Jesus. Later members of the church would have known that James and John did, in fact, suffer greatly for Jesus. They did drink that cup. They were baptized with the baptism with which Jesus was baptized. But when it comes to answering their request to sit at his right hand and his left hand, Jesus is unwilling to overstep his authority. Even as the Son of God, even as the Christ, even as the Messiah, he is not going to step outside of his authority to assign to others what God the Father has prepared according to his knowledge and according to his sovereignty. Jesus says, those spots aren't even for me to give, gentlemen. You don't know what you're asking. Presumption is dangerous, especially when it comes to following Jesus. These brothers, James and John, have presumed that because Jesus called them and because he brought them along with Peter into a closer circle than even the other nine disciples, that they were something special. Look at us, James. Of course Jesus would pick us to follow him. Why wouldn't he? You're right, John. We're the sons of thunder. We're the best fishing duo in all of Galilee. Heck, John, we're the best fishermen in all the world. 
You're right, James. Jesus took, he took us, remember, he took us with him to the mountain where he was transfigured in all of his glory. We saw him there with Moses and, and with Elijah. Do you remember that, James? Oh, I remember that. But hold, just be quiet. Peter was there too. Just, just. Man, John, we've made it. We've made it. We're, we're right there in the inner circle of the Messiah. We're so close. We have made it. No, James, we haven't made it. We've earned this. Let's go get what's ours. Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Their presumption and their request reveals that James and John don't really know who Jesus is. They have an idea, but they still don't get it. And this has been the problem with every, that, that's been revealed with every single one of Jesus' predictions of his death and the response of the disciples. They believe he's the Messiah, they believe he's the Christ, but they don't understand what that really means yet. Second, though, their presumption reveals that they don't know who they are. They don't know who Jesus is, really, and they don't know who they are. Or better yet, they don't know who they aren't. Their nearness to Jesus, their proximity to Jesus has inflated their own sense of self. No longer are they the no-name fishermen from Galilee who left everything to follow Jesus when he called. Now they see themselves as those men of great renown who Jesus is blessed to have and who have come to deserve places of honor near to him. Even the response of the other disciples, they were indignant with James and John really angry with them. Even their response to James and John reveals that, that I think that they are misunderstanding Jesus too. I don't think the indignation of the other nine disciples is righteous. It's not like they're angry with James and John saying, I can't believe you guys would ask him for that. Are you out of your minds? How selfish could you be? Don't you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? That's, they're not angry because of that. They're angry because they beat them to the punch. I can't believe they got to him first. Those snakes are trying to pull some position out from under us. They're trying to get what we should have. Jerks. Dear friend, beware the temptation of believing that just because you are near to the things of Jesus, His church, His word, or that because you are doing things for Jesus, or you're doing Jesus-y kinds of things, serving in the church, tithing, leading a Bible study, beware the temptation of believing, of presuming that because you are near to Jesus, you are in close proximity to the things of Jesus, that you are somehow something special. Presumption like this is gravely dangerous. It's gravely dangerous, especially for pastors and ministry leaders who feel like, I'm, pa- I'm pastoring a church. I'm leading this great ministry. I have all this influence. And look at this platform that I've, that I've built. And look at all the people who are listening to what I say. And they feel somehow special because they've done all this stuff for Jesus. And then they go on to abuse their position and abuse the flock of Jesus Christ. Presumption like this is gravely dangerous. And it often reveals that we neither know Jesus nor ourselves. Now, if the disciples had known Jesus well, they would have understood that he came, finally, for a sacrificial purpose. Jesus gives a startling prediction. It's followed by a stunning presumption. 
which leads into a description of his sacrificial purpose. In verses 41 to 45, Jesus calls all of the disciples together and he gives them a lesson from the world. He says, rulers and great ones among you like to prove that they rule over the, <clears throat> like to use their power, excuse me, to prove that they rule over the people that they're in charge. People who have power like to use power to oppress people like Pharaoh in Exodus, like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, like Nero in Rome, like Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. We've heard the adage already, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Jesus seems to understand this all too well when it comes to sinful men. When sinful men attain positions of great power, they are inclined to use that power to prove to people that they have authority over just how much power they have. But friends, he says to his twelve. This must not be so among you. Amen. This must not be so among you. The temptation to the disciples is to think that because they're near to the Messiah, that maybe some, maybe a lot of his authority and his power will rub off on them and they can rule like he does at his right hand and his left hand. Like Jesus said in Mark 9.35 and in Mark 10.31, the way up in the kingdom of God is down through service and sacrifice. The way to be first is to be last and servant of all. The way to greatness is through becoming a table waiter. The way to prominence is through becoming a slave. The leaders and rulers of the Gentiles love to lord it over them, but not with you, gentlemen. Jesus teaches that this is true because of what he uses his power for. Jesus uses his power as Messiah as Son of God, as God in human flesh. Think about how much power Jesus has. Unlimited. Unlimited power as the Son of God. And what does He use His power for? To prop Himself up? No. He uses His power to serve and to lift the broken and the lost and the enslaved. Verse 35 gives us the mission statement of Jesus, the purpose statement of the Messiah, what sort of Messiah He will be. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's just break down this short statement really quickly. That title, Son of Man, comes from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And this image that Daniel had of this glorious one, like a son of man to whom God gave all power and dominion and authority and the nations bowed down to him. The Son of Man came, Jesus says meaning that he arrived from someplace else. He has pre-existence. He's, he's God in flesh, the Son of God who has existed with the Father, now in human flesh. The Son of Man came not to be served, even though he's worthy of all praise and adoration and service. He's King of the universe. He's God in human flesh. If anyone deserves to be served, adored, worshipped, praised, it's him. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but instead to serve. God wraps himself in bone and muscle and skin and human flesh and all that it is to be human in order to serve. It says something about how he views his own authority. The Son of Man understands that even though he has all authority, that his authority is to be used for the benefit of others. And in what way? The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, uh, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve, and here's how he uses his authority, here's how he serves, 
by giving his life as a ransom for many. This outlines the Messiah's sacrificial purpose. That word ransom was used in Jesus' day to speak about or describe a, a price that was paid to free a slave or to deliver a prisoner. Often we hear the word ransom and we think kidnappers and hostage takers. And our mind goes to who receives the ransom? Who, who does Jesus pay by his death? Does he pay sin? Does he pay Satan? Does he pay off death? Who does he pay by this ransom? Now, this was a common view of many in the church for about a thousand years, that Jesus' death pays a price to sin and death, the, the dark powers of brokenness that man has brought into the world by his own sin. Jesus is paying a price to Satan who holds sway over the souls of lost men. But notice there's no mention of any person being paid ransom here. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't say who he's paying by his ransom. That doesn't mean that there isn't a receiving party, but that's not the emphasis of his mission. The emphasis is not on who or what holds people captive. The emphasis is on the price of their redemption. What is the price of their rescue? The life of the Messiah. To give his life as a ransom payment, as a payment to free those who are enslaved to sin. The way Jesus describes it, ransom is all about substitution. It's the life of Jesus for the redemption, the rescue, the freedom of many. And this he does as his sacrificial service and purpose as the Son of God. This is what he came to do. Amen. It was always God's plan to send his Son to rescue, to redeem, to ransom broken sinners. This is his plan all the way back when he spoke to Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Jesus was ever born. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, we have this song about a servant of God who suffers on behalf of the people. And in Isaiah 53, 12, the Lord says through his prophet these words about that suffering servant. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, the suffering servant, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 becomes like a transgressor. He becomes as a sinner, and he dies bearing the sins of sinners Yet it's on their behalf that he intercedes, that he makes a plea to God for grace and mercy. The suffering servant serves God's people by dying in their place as a substitute so that he might bring them without their sin to God. The Son of Man came to be a ransom for many. Paul picks up on the same theme of Christ's substitution for sinners who don't deserve it. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, summing up what happens at the cross, Paul says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. God treated Jesus as though He were a sinner, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great ransom that takes place. Jesus giving His life in the place of sinners, dying for them, dying the death they deserved, so that they might be brought to God without their sin. Amen. The death and resurrection of Jesus in the place of many 
in the place of many who were enslaved to their sin in His resurrection from the dead. This is the Son of God's sacrificial purpose. This is what He came for. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's what He was always meant to do. His death is not some accident of history. It is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. And it's what He intends for His followers to also imitate. From Peter's first recognition that Jesus is the Christ in Mark 8, 29, the question has been, what sort of Christ is He? What sort of Messiah will He be? Regularly, the disciples want Jesus to be an earthly king, a mighty warrior, a restorer of geopolitical Israel. But at every turn, Jesus assures them that He's a different kind of king. He's a different kind of Messiah. He's a king who serves. He's not a mighty warrior. He's a humble king. He's a king who lifts the lowly and strengthens the weak. That he'll be a Messiah who suffers and gives his life as a substitute for the morally bankrupt and for all those who are needing salvation. Jesus demonstrates time and time and time again to his disciples that he's a king who uses all of his power, all of his authority as king of the universe to deliver slaves from sin. Friends, knowing what Christ does in service to you, how have you responded to Him? Have you received this ransom payment as made on your behalf? Have you walked into freedom from sin by faith in Jesus as your substitute? Understand what this means. Coming to Jesus and trusting Him as Savior does not mean you walk down some aisle in church and you pray some prayer that a pastor tells you to pray and your life has changed forever. It's not just in repeating words. Following Jesus is in a posture, an attitude of the heart in response to the knowledge that we have of who Jesus is. Walking into freedom from sin by faith in Jesus as your substitute, first of all, recognize, requires that you recognize that you are a sinner. That you are a person needing ransom from sin. You are a person needing deliverance from death. And that your sins deserve God's punishment. You need to first recognize that you have offended an infinitely holy God by your disobedience to Him. And that what you deserve is His righteous judgment. It also requires that you understand that Jesus, the Christ, is God's own Son. And that He's God's own provision. That God has given His Son to pay the debt of death for sins that we all owe. I owe a debt of sin, a debt of death to God. And that's, that's how I, if I'm going to pay for my own sins, the way I pay for it is, is an eternity apart from God in hell. Because yeah. I don't have the capacity to pay an infinite death. I'm a limited human being. So, so to pay an infinite debt, I have to spend an infinite amount of time paying that off. We need to understand that our sin requires the payment, payment of death, but that God has given a provision to pay all of that in full in your place by sending one of infinite holiness, of infinite perfection, His own Son, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. Amen. The righteous for sinners, the infinitely holy one for the infinitely unrighteous ones. You need to understand that Jesus, is Christ, uh, that, that Jesus is God's own provision to pay a debt you cannot hope to pay yourself. 
His death is for our death. His resurrection is for our life with Him. And this knowledge requires that we come to Him as Messiah, as God's Christ, His Redeemer, Lord, King of our life, giving Him complete control and depending on Him to save us from sin, restoring our soul to God, making us into who He would have us to be. That's how we respond to what we know about the Messiah. So the natural question is, what sort of, if you've followed Jesus this way, if you've understood all of this, you've recognized what your sin deserves, and you've recognized what God has given in payment for your sin, His own Son, and you've come to Him as Lord of your life, and you're following now as His faithful disciple, loving Him, giving Him total control of your life, the natural question is then, what sort of disciple, what sort of follower would Jesus have you to be? The short answer is one that looks like Him. He would have you be a servant and a slave to all. This call to discipleship is often opposite of what we want in our own hearts, especially in a very individualistic, merit-based society in which we live that says you can go and have it all if you just work hard enough. You can be king or queen of your own dominion if you'll just put enough effort into it. You can have power, you can have influence if you just get enough people to vote for you. The call to discipleship, to be a servant, to be a slave to all, is absolutely countercultural to the society that we find ourselves in now. You should find the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, you should find it grating in some way against your heart. There should be friction in your soul. Because we want to know that following Jesus will be worth it. If I make this sacrifice, what do I get out of it? If I give Jesus my life, what does he give me in return? Jesus, we followed you all this time. Surely we have the prerogative or even the right to sit at your right or left hand. You don't know what you're asking. What we often mean when we say following, wanting to know that, that following Jesus will be worth it, I'll follow him if it's worth it. What we usually mean is that we'll do it if it's worth something to me. We'll follow Jesus if I'll be better off for following Jesus. And we usually mean better off socially, financially, economically. And before we know it, we begin to presume that since we heard the gospel call to repent of sin and follow Jesus, that now Jesus is going to make our lives great. He's going to give me prominence. He's going to give me power. He's going to give me prestige. He's going to give me fame. He's going to give me a platform. He's going to give me influence. He's going to give me prosperity because I gave him my life. Why wouldn't he give me all of these things? But if Jesus, the king of the universe, that's what he is. That's who he is. King of the universe, the only son of God. If Jesus himself did not take those things for himself when he came into this world, If his purpose was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for undeserving sinners, how is it that we would presume his intentions for us as his followers would somehow be altogether different? Do you want to follow Jesus? I hope the answer is yes. If you want to follow Jesus, you don't follow him to power and prestige. You follow him through humble service. Being a table waiter. Being... Uh, 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 the word Jesus uses, diakonos, a deacon, being a servant for those who can't do anything for you and can't do anything for themselves. You visit the sick. 
You teach children in the church. You serve in the nursery. You care for the elderly. You give your life and service to those who can't give you anything back. Do you want to be great in Christ's kingdom? If so, you need to be last in your own life. Not as a doormat to others, not welcoming abuse by others, but considering others first. Consider what could be done with that 10% of your income you keep for yourself. If instead you would give it to the ministry work of the church that you belong to. Consider how your marriage might be a helpful model for younger married couples to observe as you spend intentional time together. Instead of just being a passive consumer in worship and in small groups in your church, consider how you might help a new believer to learn God's Word, how to read it, how to study it, and apply it to their lives and put it into action in serving Christ's body. If you want to be great in the kingdom, be last in your own life. Be a servant to all. Lift others up. Is God calling you to leadership in the church or leadership in ministry? You sense a a leading from God and maybe through the affirmation of other people too to give your life in serving the flock by teaching or being a pastor or maybe serving on the mission field. Is God calling you to leadership in the church or leadership in ministry? As a follower of Jesus, the question is for all who He's called to lead is how we intend to use the authority and the influence that He would give us in a position like that. Do you desire a position of leadership in Christ's church because you see it as a path to great wealth and a platform for persuading others? Or do you see it as a path of service to Christ's people for their edification, for their building up, and for their maturity as followers of Jesus? Why do you want to do what you think God is calling you to? Friends, we are all prone to desire these things because they're attractive. Wealth is attractive. Fame is attractive. Prosperity and influence, even if you don't get rich off of it, it's attractive. People make careers out of being Instagram influencers. I don't even know what that is. People make money doing it. It's attractive to have a following. But these are not the way of discipleship after Jesus. Fame, wealth, prosperity, a platform, influence. That's not the path of following Jesus. Especially not as a leader in His church. The great Christian thinker, And philosopher Francis Schaeffer said this in a sermon that he titled, No Little People. I hope you'll permit me a a longer quotation. Francis Schaeffer said this, he said, Christ taught his disciples that they were not to be called rabbi or master, and that the greatest among them would be the servant of all. We read that today, didn't we? Doesn't each one of us tend to reverse this, following our own natural inclinations as fallen men while ignoring the word of God? Don't we like the foremost place? Seeking the highest place is in direct contradiction to the teaching of the Lord. Schaefer says, if we are going to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we must take Jesus' teaching seriously. He does not want us to press on to the greatest place unless He Himself makes it impossible to do otherwise. Even if we have an office like a parent with a child or an elder in the church. It's only the office that sets us apart. We're not greater than those over whom we have authority. If we have the world's mentality of wanting the foremost place, we are not qualified for Christian leadership. This mentality can lift us into ecclesiastical leadership or fit us for being a big name among men, but it unfits us for real spiritual leadership. Jesus came for a sacrificial purpose. And he calls his disciples 
all of them to the same, to be a servant, to be a slave to all. Perhaps this morning you find yourself in worship with us, with God's Word open before you, but you're one who has resisted Christianity. You're one who has resisted following Jesus because of the many self-labeled Christians that you see in the world around you who are greedy for power and prestige and position. You see men amassing a platform for themselves and then using that influence to abuse God's people and make themselves wealthy. And you resist following Jesus because among many of those who follow Him, all you see are hypocrites. People who say that they believe Jesus, but they live seeking the foremost place at any cost. And to be fair, maybe you have a a right to reject those people as genuine followers of Jesus. And you may have a good cause to reject those people because, uh, because of the hypocrisy that you see in their life. But friend, you cannot, on the basis of their lives, reject Jesus for the same reason. Because Jesus has not abused you. Jesus has not taken advantage of you. Jesus has not forsaken or forgotten you, and Jesus has never used you to get power for himself. Quite the opposite. He's given his life to ransom you. But you can't live in the freedom that Jesus promises if you continue resisting him because of the hypocrites that say they follow him. You can reject hypocrites, that's fine. But you can't reject Jesus. He's not a hypocrite. He's not done what the hypocrites you say you see have done to you. He's done the opposite. So what will you do with the Messiah who gave his life for you? Will you receive him? Will you welcome him as king of your life? As master of your soul? Will you follow him as his faithful servant? Giving your life in service and sacrifice for others as he's done for you? With Jesus, the way to life is through death. The way up is down. The way to prominence is through service and slavery, just like Jesus. The call of the Savior, his own purpose and mission in life was service and sacrifice for many. And the call for his disciples is nothing less. Service and sacrifice are the call of the Savior and the call of those who follow him. So what today, dear friends, must you do? What must you repent of? Who must you begin to serve? Where must you exercise humility before God and men? How do you need to begin to trust in the ransom-paying Savior for your salvation to be his faithful disciple today? How will the Holy Spirit lead you to respond in faithful obedience to his word today? Let's pray and let's respond faithfully. We're going to sing a song of response this morning. And during that time, however, you need to respond to what God's word has called you to this morning. I pray that you will. Maybe you'll come to the front and just need to spend some time in prayer before God. Maybe you need to just kneel at your seat and give to God, give to the Lord all those things you've been holding on to for yourself. Maybe there are sins you need to repent of. Maybe you need to follow Jesus for the first time today as Lord and Master, as King of your soul. I'll be here at the front even as we sing this song of response. If there's something you need prayer for, if you need to follow Jesus as Savior today, giving your whole life and trust to Him, Come talk to me uh, this morning. Let's, let's begin a conversation about how you can have assurance of your salvation and begin to understand what it means to follow Jesus, your ransom-paying Savior. Let's pray together.